0: Hi, I'm Eloy Ortiz-Oakley, and welcome back to The Rant, the podcast where we pull back the curtain and break down the people, the policies, and the politics of our higher education system. In this episode, I get to sit down with an old friend and higher education journalist, Paul Fain. Paul is a former news editor at Inside Higher Ed and the writer for The Job, a weekly newsletter covering the connections between education and the American workforce. Paul, welcome
1: to The Rant. Good to see you, Loy. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, Paul. It's great to see you again. I know that uh, you and I have interacted over the years, and we you are what we call in the business of veteran journalists in higher education. So that uh, otherwise means that you've been around the block a few times.
1: It's true. Time flies. <laughs>
0: You've recently been focused on covering the changing landscape of workforce education and writing about things like upskilling of the American workforce. However, before we get into all of that, I want to spend some time and making sure our listeners get to know you. So, Paul, tell us a little bit about your education and professional journey and what led you to your career in journalism.
1: Yeah, it goes pretty far back, but I was uh traditional liberal arts student, uh, public university, University of Delaware, our president's alma mater.
0: So there's hope for liberal Uh, arts majors.
1: There is definitely. Uh, It equips you for a fast-changing economy and a challenge like, frankly, going into journalism. But yeah, I was political science, history major, didn't study journalism, took one class, didn't get a great grade in that class, to be honest, but I ex, I had some experiential learning. I worked at the college newspaper, uh-huh. that's where I got the bug and, uh, you know, despite being behind, didn't do the right internships or any internships that, that gave me the experience that before, frankly, the, the, the rug was pulled under journalism. Mm-hmm. I was able to get in by the skin of my teeth. Right,
0: you mentioned things like the the right internship or getting enough information about how to succeed in the career that you want to go in. Does some of that stay with you and stick with you in your coverage of higher education as you go forward?
1: It does, I, mostly. Frankly, in thinking about the labor market and the really tough questions that we have about when is college a good investment, you know, it was for me mm-hmm. unequivocally. Uh, I was very privileged in my higher ed experience that said if somebody asked me should i go and take out a lot of debt to go be a journalist i would say no it's honestly it's one of those that the times did a story mid-pandemic about uh journalism program in a public institution and it was you know, in the university of pennsylvania mm-hmm. written from the standpoint of the tragedy of the cut and it is sad. People lose jobs when journals department went away, but wow, really tough to break into this industry from a open access public.
0: Right. I know in my day job at College Futures, we support um, organizations like Open Campus and support internships for education journalists at uh, outlets like CalMatters and, and EdSource. But it's it's interesting to think that we've come to this point. I know When I was growing up in higher education, when I was at Long Beach City College, there was an education reporter that showed up to every meeting, uh, every board meeting of the community college district, of the school board. That all has gone away. And uh, I don't think we're a better education system because of that. I know we're getting off on journalism, but uh, but do you have hope for, for journalism in this space or is the answer the nonprofit sector?
1: Yeah, look, I, it's not always pleasant to have journalists watching, uh, but it's good for society (laughs) and the impact on local news is tragic and serious for this nation. I'm appreciative of the efforts of your institution and others for helping local journalism. Um, You know, I don't know. I think, I think there's more value than ever in certain ways. And people do see that the business model is very imperiled. Uh, unless you're at one of the biggies like the New York Times. The right.
0: I think we could probably talk about local journalism the entire podcast, and, and maybe we will come Indeed. back and, and just talk about that. But for now, let's talk about your current endeavor. You are covering higher education. You've covered higher education for many, many years. I know we interacted when you were at the at Inside Higher Ed, which was one of the few national journals that was covering community colleges at the time. Um, and now you're writing a lot about the changes that you see happening in the higher education landscape. What strikes you as some of the greatest shifts in, in the higher ed landscape that you've seen in recent years?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for the access over the years, by the way, including uh, my time at in inside higher ed. I mean that sincerely. Uh, you were always open to our calls and candid with us. Um, you know the big the big shift is the enrollment crisis, mm-hmm. which first was slow moving and then not slow moving uh, during the pandemic, right. as you know well, particularly with community colleges and open access institutions. I think it, in front of what we all know, uh, the impact of declining birth rates and the Great Recession, probably what do you want to call it, the enrollment cliff. I hear that term now, uh, but (laughs) definitely enhanced challenges, you know, big challenges, particularly in some states and regions to come. And, you know, I think along with that questions about the value of higher education, I want to be very careful about what I'm saying there. What I, to me, the big shift was seeing the data that we all kind of knew was true, but was maybe even worse than we thought um, of. how hard it is to change a student's economic and social mobility in this country. Uh, I'm talking about the research from Raj Chetty, mm-hmm. his compadres note, Opportunity Insights, just showing that it doesn't work for most students in most places as well as we like. I think that's safe to say. That's right. And, you know, the, the, the pandemic, I think, showed why and just really kind of made bare the challenges and how privilege replicates itself in ways that, are very hard to curb. Like, I, I think about this a lot. The word mobility, I'm a word guy. It means somebody's got to give something up. For somebody right. to come to come up, and we don't do that very well in the society. You know, but to your question, uh, in addition to that data, just seeing the value of social capital mm-hmm. and getting a better sense of, you know, it's not just completing, it's getting that j- their job, and it's not just the first job. It's finding a, a career and seeing how much work we
0: have to do there. Right. Do, do you see the changes happening and discussions happening similarly across the different sections of post-secondary education, community colleges, four-year universities, selective, private? Or, or do you see different conversations and different changes happening depending on what type of post-secondary institution you're in?
1: absolutely different conversations Mm -hmm. you know this well you can't generalize about anything in higher ed i mean (laughs) what happens at a california community college versus one in montana or you know whatever it's even within sectors and regions california (laughs) good luck generalizing about california you know that goes without saying yeah i do think that the even the highly selective wealth very wealthy institutions are feeling some of this pressure at least seeing the backlash and the challenges manifest differently. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I'm not that worried about the highly selective institutions. I mean, but they do, they face some challenges more maybe than they have before. You know, we've got those tenure bills in some states and some legitimate culture war driven challenges for them. But for the rest of higher ed, it's, it largely is around those two big shifts. i Discussed Mm -hmm. and how to deal with them, frankly, right? And and, you know, I guess I did. I should say that the business model and how that all shapes up. Well, you know, during the pandemic, you had a lot of federal backfilling that has gone away,
0: right? The the business model is going to be a challenge. I think some institutions are beginning to wrestle with it. Some are just still waiting for things to go back to normal in their minds. But um, I just don't see things ever going back to the way they were pre-pandemic. Oh, and one of those areas that I think are not going back is this continued conversation and focus on skills. You've written about it in The Job. One of your last posts was about IBM and the skills-first framework. When people in this space talk about a skills-first framework, what do you think they mean? And, and how, do you, how do you explain that to your readers?
1: It's honestly one of the toughest challenges in my journalism <laughs> career, because it can be so narrow. It can be technical questions about learning and employment records, mm-hmm. or it can be companies dropping or states dropping degree requirements. It can be competency-based education. It's it's all of that. Right. And I think being really clear about what piece I'm trying to write about is is the key, because it gets messy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think folks can really confuse things. Like I think, say, for example, and this is a controversial one, if you've dropped a degree requirement as a state, whether or not you succeed in making a big change, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. The question that seems to be coming out a lot right now is, are you against the four-year degree? <laughs> and there's a bit of a leap there that I don't think you can make in all cases. Right. And it's, it's just, it's very challenging. But I think, To me, the centerpiece of it is pretty clear. It's, you know, when done right, these conversations, it's about valuing what people know and can do outside of a credential or in different ways than traditional credentials have. Mm -hmm. And I think most people could get behind that. You know, I don't, that, that isn't necessarily a controversial concept, but executing it, making changes and things like hiring, uh, not easy at all. Right.
0: Well, I would certainly agree with you that it is pretty messy right now. I mean, there are various elements. I know organizations like Jobs for the Future are putting a lot of their weight behind clarifying what a skills first framework is all about. my last podcast, I had Maria Flynn talking a little bit about that. And I think, as you said, when done right, this is about equity. This is about not moving away from a bachelor's degree as the end game but thinking more about what happens in between. How do you give learners the benefit of their experiences, their learning? How do we better translate that into job skills and and competencies to give them a leg up in this fast-changing workforce? Uh, And it's also, I think, an equity issue. Uh, We continue to move the goalposts on learners. You know, there was a time when a High school diploma was enough to get into a decent-paying job. Now it's a post-secondary credential, or it's a bachelor's degree, or it's a master's degree in computer science. Uh, so, part of this as well is is how do we how do we right size what employers are looking for and what kind of skills that learners are are obtaining. Do do you feel that um, the conversation is beginning to gel, or do you still see it as a very disparate conversation happening throughout the country
1: it's a big shift and uh, one to be taken seriously i think you're asking the right questions though you know we haven't really done a credentialing conversation in this country at least not one that i have seen certainly not in the level mm-hmm. of the student debt conversation to, to pick an example you know there was some research from the upjohn institute recently that despite all the degree requirement dropping all the states and companies dropping degree requirements. It hasn't happened. It hasn't actually moved the needle, big surprise and actually graduate degrees. uh, you're seeing they're gaining in the job market. So (laughs) it's going the other way. Right. And you know, to me, the real question here is, are we okay with that? Would we like to change that? I'm, I think most people would say, you know, we do want to open opportunity to folks who don't just have graduate degrees and tend to be wealthy in their upbringing and their current experience. But, you know, there's also this question of what if we don't, what, what if, you know, all this campaign to move beyond the college degree does is to, to make people who might benefit from college feel better about not going to college and you don't move the needle. That, that is a real risk. But to me, I think you have to ask it very clearly is, is the risk enough that we don't even try, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'm not sure I would say that, but you know, to, to break it into more specific terms, a lot of this debate is about four year degrees, right? both sides. And I hate that it's a both sides thing, but it is, it's pretty, it's pretty binary, try to kind of incorporate the two year degree or certificates from community colleges into their point, you know, like <laughs> I. I think that dropping a four-year d- degree requirement, if it opens the door to a graduate from a community college, that seems like a good thing. Right. And, you know, I think we should be really clear here. What are we, who are we talking about are, and who are we trying to help? And opening opportunity for folks who go to community colleges seems like a pretty hard one to to be against.
0: I agree. You know, the, the example that drives me crazy the most and probably because, you know, I spent so much time in community colleges. And when I was at a community college in Long Beach, we had, you know, one of the oldest nursing programs in the state. But just seeing the transition from hospitals and medical centers hiring RNs, who just had an associate's degree in nursing, to then requiring the BSN. And every time I would talk to the hiring managers at those hospitals, they'd tell me, well, your graduates are great. They are some of the best nurses we have. But the federal government is incentivizing us now to hire BSNs. It's just confounding to me how we just changed that requirement. And it's had a huge impact on, on nursing programs. And it's created a much costlier path to becoming a nurse so that's just one of my pet
1: peeves <laughs> absolutely and you know i have to say i don't want to sound like a Pollyanna here mm-hmm. but i think the the extreme crisis in healthcare right uh, with the workforce and particularly nursing gives me some confidence that governments employers as a key partner and higher ed can work together to figure out when those degree requirements should be set for what, Mm -hmm. you know, I would love to see it, but I think the pull from industry to do things differently is real. And in that industry more than any, frankly.
0: Now, speaking of credentialing, you've recently written about conversations on the Hill regarding the debate over short-term Pell. This is a drive to open up Pell to shorter-term credentialing programs to help upskill or reskill individuals who are trying to get into newly created jobs or enhance or improve the skilling of the American workforce and to have the federal government get behind that. Where are those discussions? And do you see that there's enough momentum to actually lead to federal policy?
1: It's a great question. You know, one of the things I like about covering workforce education is that it is (laughs) Strangely nonpartisan, <laughs> right? Completely nonpartisan, right. but certainly compared to four-year higher ed, you know, I sometimes listen to folks from red states and they sound like they're from California. Maybe they're using different words, <laughs> but it's the same goal, right? Like opening opportunity, creating more on ramps to education and training. Mm-hmm. And that said, that you know, this proposal is is bipartisan. Tim Kaine, right. Virginia Democrat uh, Senator, is a proponent of one of the three main bills. They've found a lot of agreement, uh, the Republicans and Democrats. They're, the Republicans in the House have guardrails that to prevent bad actors that are pretty strong. I think I haven't heard many people say they're not strong enough, mm-hmm. to be honest. So that makes you think that this will happen. Uh, you know, but I, I put a headline on one of my pieces recently that said the proposals were in limbo, <laughs> and I got a call from a lobbyist. He <laughs> said hey, it's worse than limbo. It's it's in the it's in the bad place. And, you know, you know, the reason it's the same sticking points that so many things have, have gotten stuck on in higher ed for profit colleges right. being a big one, should they be eligible? I just don't know that that debate is good in the way Washington works right now. Right. It's complete dysfunction. It seems like that one is holding it up and it's anybody's guess, but, but, you know, as some people say, you can be stalled for a long time. That can happen overnight in Washington too. Right. So it may happen. It's a very popular bipartisan solution that has some big challenges.
0: We will keep our fingers crossed, but you're right. I mean, this debate has come a long way. It is a bipartisan debate, and um, I think we're hopeful that we'll see something something come out of it um, that's positive. Now, speaking of challenges you've seen and read and and heard a lot about concern regarding the impact of artificial intelligence on jobs and you've heard a lot of institutions and third-party intermediaries talk about using GAI to support learners how are you thinking about this issue and and do you see things in your coverage that concerns
1: you absolutely and i'm not an early adopter of technology myself i'm a skeptic even a cynic sometimes about technology I have to say that the more I hear from smart people, mm-hmm. the more I think this is a biggie. This this is not going to be adaptive learning or MOOCs or some of the other tech you know, innovations right. we've seen that haven't done anything close to what people think. And it's it's a framing question like where should we even be looking? Mm-hmm. You know, let me let me be clear here. I feel like a lot of the coverage and turning it back on journalists here. It's well. You know, are students going to cheat on essays you know, really small fry stuff? Like right. people, like there are bigger, <laughs> bigger challenges here, or, you know, the robots are coming mm-hmm. apocalypse of jobs, you know, and, and frankly, those are serious too. But the, in the middle there, there's a lot of nuance that I, I get the sense. The main thing I'm, I want to convey here is people are desperate for help, for guidance, how to react to this incredible challenge. if. if My analysis from smart people is right. And this is like a Gutenberg printing press level technological change Mm -hmm. and one, frankly, that's going to go fast, faster than we can even understand. Like if you are seeing mistakes in chat GPT, well, he won't be seeing as many of them in, you know, three weeks. Right. It's, It's not like many, many other tools. We, I, I feel like there's a bizarre lack of accessible information. Um, you know, the big consulting firms are spending billions of dollars to help companies with this. That's another ev- more evidence, I think that there's just this desperate need to understand it. So like to your point about jobs, is coding in trouble? Probably in my, my gut and some of the early things I saw was any coding can be easily replaced. So if you're in that business of providing that you know, or trying to get into it, you got to think differently. Mm-hmm. but it's not that easy we're already seeing you know it can replace a lot of the frontline coding tasks you could you can harness it who gets to do that what what, what kind of frontline workers can use it to their advantage and who can't these are the sort of questions that are enormously difficult and i think everybody needs help and i've even been asked by k12 districts to start talking about this and i'm like you can't find anyone better than me but <laughs> but seriously though like I think just starting with the big, big question of how do we even think about the role of the human Mm -hmm. in teaching, learning, and work is really hard on this. And, you know, it's not just going to be frontline, lower income workers who are affected. Like my job is being affected. I'm going to use AI this week to help pull together some of my notes as a first draft for something. And like I can see the day, it's not hopefully right around the corner, but where my newsletter could be done by AI in ways that might replace me. So I think we all have to think about this. It's going to change something like eighty-five percent of jobs by twenty thirty, according to some estimates. So right, it's a biggie. Even just the way that the questions play out with time, I, I, the human brain is not well suited to. Right. It's, but I think being open. To information that is difficult is a key to to how to navigate this moment. I agree.
0: The moment is coming and I think we have to continue to find ways to help shape this in a way that we are supporting learners. We're not disadvantaging learners or we're supporting workers. We're not disadvantaging workers. And that'll, that'll be the challenge. That's not, we don't have a great history of implementing new technologies in ways that help those who have the least opportunity, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. And I'm I'm sure you'll be there to cover it. So speaking of what you cover, as we begin to close, Paul, why don't you tell our listeners about the job for those who have been living under a rock and aren't reading the job? How do they find your work and what kind of things do you expect to cover over the next year?
1: It's it's a free newsletter, it's weekly, it's available at WorkShift, so it's just workshift.opencampusmedia.org, it's, and we pr- produce a decent amount of content on WorkShift as well. It's a complimentary publication, mm-hmm. but the goal is to widen the frame from just focused on higher education to everything from K-12 up to corporate training to jobs, and to try to talk to employers and government officials as much as higher ed folks, Um, but with a real focus on open access institution, lower income learners. Again, I think the real challenge, as you just said, is how do we make sure that this moment, uh, we're paying attention to people who are underserved and, uh, you know, I, you know, I remember, I have to say, I, the microphone was flipped around, I was interviewing you (laughs) during the early pandemic. And you said something about uh, really looking back at the lessons we learned during the first recession, the great recession mm-hmm. to try to make good decisions in this challenge. And I, I am hopeful, you know, and that's, that's the newsletters about that a lot. It's like, where are there experiments that are worth watching that can be duplicated? And it's often about states that are trying things at the state level. I feel like there's a lot of movement to try to tighten the connections between education and work and to look at other states and how they're doing things because, you know, there's some real need and real challenges out there.
0: Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Paul. And because of journalists like you, I think we're much better informed. We have a much broader view of what's happening. And we need people to be asking questions of us in the education industry. So listen, thank you for joining me here on The Rant, and I really do appreciate your work.
1: Thanks, Eloy. Thanks for having me, and I'm really glad you're doing this podcast. Keep it up.
0: All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining me here on The Rant. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button, follow us on this YouTube channel, uh, and make sure that you're following us on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us your comments. Let me know what you think about the Skills First Framework, about the impact of AI on the workforce, and please do Follow uh, Paul Fane's newsletter. It's a great newsletter. So thanks for joining me, everyone, and we'll be back to you soon.